Peter Knight and I want to welcome you to the next podcast in this series of Iron Golf Mind. And the subject that we're looking at through this series is the differences that make the difference between very good performers and outstanding performers. And today I'm speaking with Professor Damien Farrow. Uh, Damien's an expert in motor skill acquisition. He's worked for almost 10 years with the Australian Institute of Sport, which means that he's worked with all of the Olympic sports as well as other major sports from our, our sporting codes. Our Australian cricket team uh, with AFL, with the Crows, Tennis Australia and also Swimming Australia. Damien, welcome. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. One of the things that we look at in your field, I, I guess my question of curiosity to start with is, um, what is motorcycle acquisition and how is it a field? Yeah, it's a good question to start with. It, uh, if We can relate it to sport, obviously, but it's what everyone does on a, on a pretty regular basis. We all have to learn new things. So whether that's learning how to um, use the remote control at home or you've decided you want to learn the piano, or in our case, we might decide it's time to um, brush off the sticks and, and learn how to play golf again. So whatever it is, people want to learn how to improve on, a, on a, a new skill or something that they've already been doing. And so my area of um, expertise is understanding what are the qualities that come into play to, to influence that skill learning process. How can we make it as effective as possible for the learner so that they do progress and, and achieve their, their aim? And so my role is to work through the coach so I'm not an expert in any particular sport, but I try and provide that information so a coach can apply it to their particular context. Mm. And what led you to this field? It's a pretty sad story, actually. Um, I was an aspiring tennis player, but pretty quickly realised that I wasn't very good. Uh, you then realise... Um, I started doing some coaching myself, so tennis coaching, and then at the same time I'm going through university studying physical education... And I think those two things coming together, so the coaching and the physical education, and there was just, you notice so many ways in which people learn or don't learn. And so I'd have children that would progress rapidly and other kids that they could still never hit a forehand or they couldn't track the ball. So I got pretty intrigued by all that. And so I continued to do further study in this particular area and did a master's in, in um, the way we uh, schedule practice and then ultimately went and did a PhD in, in uh, anticipation and those type of qualities about that separate the best from the rest. So I think it's just spurned from being a poor performer myself but wanting to help all these uh, learners that I was being exposed to within tennis coaching. So, yeah, in a, in a brief sort of snapshot, that's how it came about. Yeah. It's a fairly common theme. I see a lot of coaches who have similar stories. You know, they've... Um, they've either they've perhaps not been quite good enough and then their their search out of curiosity or exploration to try and find out you know what what are the answers what did I miss and then it becomes from a coaching setting well I'm not I'm going to give every other athlete that I come in contact with an opportunity to um, you know either avoid the mistakes I made or you know not miss out like I missed out so with your career being based around learning and, and acquisition, what are the differences you see between effective learning? How would you describe that compared to 
normal learning? Mm. And how, how common is how common is effective learning? Mm. That's a good question, Peter. I, the way I look at it, there's there's the theories of learning, if you like, or the textbook approach to learning. And then you can. My role is to essentially sit there, knowing that information, and watch a coach coach or a learner learn with or without a coach. And you can see qualities where you go, yep, they're on the right track, they're doing exactly what the textbook would suggest. And then there are many occasions where it's more ineffective than effective. And and that's not surprising because it's it's difficult to measure learning. We're always just using our current performance as an indication of how much we've learned. And quite often it's something that you do today that really helps you but that's not apparent for maybe another month mm. in, in your development. And so, so it's not surprising that it is difficult to know whether you're being effective or ineffective. Probably the best example I can give is a golf example where you can go to a, a practice range and, and watch a whole array of people practice and probably the most common thing you'll see is that they'll be there with a particular club, usually the driver, and they're just hitting the cover off the driver time after time after time, and they might hit 80 shots. Mm. If you look across those people, some of them are seemingly trying to put a pre-shot routine in before they hit the ball, and others are literally just grabbing the ball, putting on the tee, whack, grab a ball, put it on the tee, whack. So straight away you can see that there's a difference between what's effective and what's ineffective. But then from a learning theory, if uh, there's there's other uh, examples where, well, we know that it's not really that important to hit the same club time after time, particularly if you're trying to hit that shot the same way. And so what would be more effective is to have a driver and then hit a wedge or, or build a sequence like you would on a course where you're playing, playing a hole or two and so there might be a middle iron and then a, and then a wedge after the driver. So through just basic observation, you can see many forms of learning approach, if you like, whether it's effective or ineffective. So my role is to, one, understand what the goal of the learner is and then schedule that most appropriately. And so probably the three, the three key areas I think that are important is practice or the way you structure your practice. So the example I just provided being an example there. And, and the basic rule of thumb is that each repetition should challenge you quite a lot. And I don't think, and if I use the driver example, the first repetition might have challenged you, but by the tenth, the nervous system is no longer really being challenged. So the learning is becoming more and more ineffective as you progress. So that's hence the reason why you might need to change clubs and spike the system to think a little bit more about what it's trying to do. So I think that's important. The f and then if we introduce a coach, the feedback that the coach provides is critical. And there's a whole, uh, you know, it's a whole separate topic almost into the the way in which you provide effective feedback. But again, good coaches are able to do that well and, and structure the feedback to meet the needs of the, of the, the player. So I think that's, that's critical. And then I think the other, the other part of learning is just understanding the psychology of learning. So learning and, and um, psychology or motivation are reciprocally linked. So if I'm motivated to learn something, I'm likely to learn. But equally, as I start to get better at something, you get more motivated. And mm. so it's this cycle that continues. And good coaches know that, and they know how to shape a practice session so that that's a self-fulfilling 
consequence. So they're the things that I look for. That's a pretty long-winded answer, but in, in, um, in short form, in some ways, these are the key qualities. It was interesting what you were saying about a player hitting, you know, 10 drivers in a row, and, and sometimes that's like, uh, as you say, they might have hit 80 in a row. Um, so there's a, there's a difference between between practicing, which could be just hitting balls, and actually learning. There's a, yeah, a major difference, and I, there's there's many schools of thought on how learning is represented within our, our nervous system. The way, whether it's right or wrong, the way I like to think of it is learning is a problem-solving task, hmm. and we really need to you really need to see the person who's learning being challenged to solve that problem. And a great example is, um, an analogy is Johnny Wilkinson, the English rugby union player who famously beat us with his kicking skills in the World Cup. Now, he was a real technician in terms of kicking. His analogy of learning how to kick well was that it was like a jigsaw puzzle. So every training session, he's assembling this jigsaw puzzle. And at the end of training, hopefully, he's got a nice, perfect jigsaw. But then, essentially, unlike maybe Nana, who then glues that jigsaw together and puts it up on her wall, Johnny rips the jigsaw up, and then the next training session, he has to reconstruct it again. And I think that's a really nice analogy of what learning is. It's this problem-solving, and there's always something that you need to be working on and, and refining and, and so forth. Hmm. And so, with you, you mentioned just before about the link between you know, the psychology and also the, the learning aspects of it. What do you see with the best athletes as far as their learning goes? Yeah, um, there's a number of qualities, I think, like, like many things that stand out. And to me, there's two key things, and, and it, all, it all can be explained by one theory, but if I start with, you, they tend to set challenges for themselves that are difficult, so they don't... They don't always just practice easy. They they make it a, a challenging task, which is what theory would suggest you do. And then I think the other part of it is then this psychology of how they approach mm. practice. And so I certainly have got interested in it, not having a psych background, but obviously closely related field. The key principle I'm seeing that explains more and more what I see in a skilled practice environment is a theory called self-regulation. And essentially self-regulation is... This, your athlete's ability to be aware of what they are doing, so what we call metacognition, so they're aware of how they need to challenge themselves and set appropriate practice. There's also a motivational aspect to what they do, so they're, they're able to intrinsically motivate themselves to want to practice harder. And then there's behaviour in that you, they, they represent this in, in their practice behaviour so or their playing behaviours or whatever it may be. So this one theory to me, and there's more and more evidence being um, generated from this theory, just separating the best from the rest in, or even the best from quite good. You know, there seems to be this, um, this difference between the two. It's interesting with those three things. The, the first one that you talked about, the metacognition and, metacognition and being very aware of what you're doing in a fine motor skill, skill sport like golf, that's so critical because from a, when the technical skill is being developed, the, the, the athlete has to know, um, you know what's good and what's not. Sure, you can see the ball flight mm. and get a sense of what contact's like, but to actually know what you're doing physically 
that's really important to know. Yeah, and so the, the theory, uh, so I touched on metacognition, motivation, behaviour. If we drill down into each of those, what you're talking about there in that metacognitive state, it is, it's being able to evaluate, plan, evaluate, um, and, and almost analyse your own performance. Mm. So you become a... The good players are good coaches of themselves in some respects. And so... And I think that tells us what good coaches do. Good coaches empower their players to be uh, good evaluators of their own performance. So, yeah, to me that makes logical sense. And ironically, um, if we then look at what... If we go back to your earlier question about effective and ineffective, there's a lot of ineffective coaching Mm. in that there's a lot of coaches that almost create a dependency between themselves and their player rather than this opposite... um, Situation, which is far more effective in that you're empowering your player to to be able to perform autonomously without the need of a coach all the time. Mm. Which in the long run is actually going to make it easier for both the player and the athlete, you know, the coach and the athlete. You would think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. So to me, that's a yeah, a key differentiation point. And it's not just at the coaching level. I, I think we see this across our sporting system mm. as well that... Ironically, we, we try and do more and more for our athletes as they become higher and higher skilled within our pathways when actually we should be almost developing these athletes that rely less and less on the system rather than become more and more reliant on the system. Mm. So it's, a, it's an interesting challenge across our whole sports system. And especially with golf because um, there's always a challenge between providing really good quality support for athletes and part of that is going to be competition, which is the most expensive part. And so providing opportunities for these athletes and funding that, uh, then all of a sudden the, they want to perform well. They, and the advantage for them is that they're going to continue to receive support you know, for a certain number of years. Uh, but the downside of it is sometimes the consequences aren't that real until the funding is withdrawn and all of a sudden there's, there's no support there. Mm-hmm. There's no support base that they have that says, okay, now I'm on my own, I'm independent, I still know what to do. Mm. And I think um, it's very true of golf, but it's also very true of many other sports. And so some work that we've been involved with, with Tennis Australia, who, very similar, I suppose, being able to develop an international travel schedule that meets the needs of the player, so they're playing the right tournaments at the right stage of their development and getting their way around to build a ranking, etc., um, that requires money. It requires resource and support initially maybe from the national organisation. But then this challenge of how much and when and when to withdraw and have consequence um, is a very difficult equation probably to get right and it probably depends on each individual athlete. Mm-hmm. And so I know Tennis Australia right now are working through that and um, trying to develop a, a pathway, if you like, that's appropriate. And that's trying to do it in an evidence-based fashion. So some of the key things we found was we interviewed players that made the top 100, which is, uh, by definition, a successful tennis career, and those that were outside the top 100. And those that were in the top 100, they just demonstrated these qualities that we probably all see, that their work ethic was superior, um, but also their awareness to know when to invest in themselves, which is what we're just talking about. So using their own prize money that they may have earned or or taking a risk with what savings they had to invest in a coach or to invest in a physio support or to travel a bit further into a schedule. Um, 
making those decisions and backing themselves seemed to be a quality that really differentiated them. Whereas those outside the top 100, more likely to, if they made a little bit of money, buy a house and mm. be safe. Um, or, or maybe rely on the system, the, the national system, rather than uh, for a coach, rather than buy their own coaching support. So uh, there were quite apparent differences, which is, as I said earlier, it all ties back to, you can explain it theoretically through self-regulation, but they're just very clear examples that illustrate the point, I think. Hmm. And that sort of you know, brings us, I guess, to the central point of the, the podcast series, which is what are the differentiators, and that's, that's clearly one. So, I mean, to me, when I hear you you're talking about what those athletes are, go, are doing, is that there's a, there's a decisiveness, there's a, an independence of thought and decision-making that seemed to separate out those athletes. There was, and probably a good example, and it can happen at different stages in your career, but uh, I'm thinking of one particular player who talked about soon as he got, he made it through that junior transition, he's out playing satellite type events, mm-hmm. so the second, third tier, if you like, and very quickly he was aware or could see the differences in the type of players that he was dealing with in the, those that had talent but were pretty lazy, didn't train very hard or were very casual about mm. their approach and then others that had that work ethic and he he saw an opportunity. So this is self-regulation, this metacognition, awareness of what's going on around you. If I train harder than these guys, I've got a distinct advantage mm. and and not surprisingly, he did have a distinct advantage and he moved through the system more quickly and he's on the, he's on the tour and in the top 100 and in the top 50 and so on based on this observation that he made for himself. And I think, yeah, that's what we're looking to develop. And some players seem to have blinkers on and others, they, they observe that, which is part one, but can then implement a plan and stick to it to, to realise their potential. I love that story because it also gets to the heart of, you know, beliefs about what, what's going to make me good. If he's noticed that the hard workers are better, then that creates the belief, if I work hard, I'll be better. And, of course, as he continues to work hard, that belief becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, absolutely. And self-belief was one of the key themes that we, we saw as well. So, and, and that self-belief is always going to be tested in elite sport, and there's no question. But, again, this, the quotes that kept coming up were things like, OK, I, I'm believing that I can crack this, and they only need to win a set off a, off a higher-ranked player and go, hang on a minute, I can compete with this guy. Just got to change a couple of things. So you hang in there, you hang in there, and then, yeah, all of a sudden you get lucky, supposedly lucky. Um, the less the, those outside the top 100 didn't necessarily have that self-belief, and it was like, oh, if only I'd had a coach who could have addressed this deficiency on my backhand, or there was always an external factor responsible for their lack of success, and so their self-belief would get chipped away. So... Yeah, I think it's common, really common across our elite athletes. It, just saying that story reminds me of the the recent Australian Open at Royal Sydney where uh, Rory McIlroy was chasing Adam Scott for the entire tournament. And uh, with three holes to go, McIlroy was behind and he finished up winning on the 18th. And I wonder how many other athletes would have really deep down believe that if they persisted they were still on a chance. They might have thought, um, you know, 
they might have thought, well, logic-wise, if I persist, you never know. But I think there's a difference with the champion. It's like, if I persist, I'm a real chance here. That's and right. And they do it. Yeah, and that's uh, going back to our theory, self-regulation. That's what we mean by behaviour. So it's not just a thought. Mm. You've got to execute to, to give yourself a chance. You've either got to make birdie or, or, or not... Um, not leak shots in that final few holes to give yourself that opportunity. So it's actioning the behaviour that you need to be needs to be seen. And mm. again, there are those critical moments. And again, we talk from the tennis analogy. Some of the things I think about is um, that were quoted was you look at a top 300 player and a top 50 player on the practice court. They look the same. Yeah, they really do. But it's at 30, 40 down at a critical point in the set the decisions that are made, the shots that are played, the point patterns that are established, differentiate the two. Mm. And that's exactly what you're saying about McElroy. You know, he, he had a plan and he executed it to keep himself in the game or, or bridge that gap and, and yeah, he's there at the end. Mm. So, yeah, very common. Yeah, it is. And it, it's fascinating to watch too. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, particularly watching tennis when you get the best players in the world there's almost this expectation that they'll prevail. Yeah, and, and yeah, it seems to be the case. So, um, again, players talk about that, that when you're coming through, there's, players have this reputation. So you're beating a reputation as much as you're beating the player in that respect. But, again, that's where your self-belief system has to be very strong that, well, he is no different to me and he has this reputation, but not against me, he doesn't. So it's still... This ball is still just this tennis ball. It's mm. not weighted in his favour in any way. So I think it's about you know having a plan for the moment and the time to remove those sort of extraneous factors. But it's very true. You can see the elite players don't often have to win the game. The others lose it mm. on their behalf. So, yeah. And I'm curious, what else did you notice from your work with the, with the tennis players? Um, there was a connection, uh, certainly in tennis, and it probably I think a lot of sportsmen would say the same thing. The psychological skills come from the physical skills. So this connection between, I mentioned earlier, the work hard, train hard, that was a, a really common observation. So a lot of the players represented the positive psychology through positive physical training behaviour. So they, they started to believe in themselves more or whatever it might be on that basis. So... I think we've got to be creative about how we do psychology with our athletes as a consequence and realise that quite often it's not about maybe initially anyway sitting there and getting them to go through some sort of um, thought process, but it's represented in some sort of physical process and then they'll make, the, they'll make that step and then I think the rest of the psychology intervention you might do becomes easier as a, as a consequence of that. So that was a really common feature I think more than anything um, trying to think and probably the other probably the other key point which I've already touched upon was finding the right coach at the right time mm. was a common thing that the, the better players commented on so this coach was really helpful in terms of developing my technical skills but technical skills were important early but then they very quickly realised that it's more about the mental side of the game so one player talked about as a junior, they could rely 80% on their technical skills to win. And that was the biggest challenge is that that didn't cut it when they were on the tour because everyone's hit 50,000 balls in a year and all this sort of stuff. And so they then realised it was 80% mental 
that got them the result and only 20% physical. So I think how we uh, intervene in that, that transition from junior to senior, realising the juniors that come through typically have had a pretty good run. Mm. They're the best in terms of talent probably. And it's giving them the skills that actually make them succeed at the international senior level that are quite different. And that's a bit of a shock to, to many players. And maybe it shouldn't be. And that's a reflection of us having a better system in place, potentially. Mm. And these traits, uh, the differentiate these players, are they trainable? I strongly believe they are. So it's a really common question that you get. And... I think we're seeing more and more there's a lot of uh, work being done on genetics and the, the, the school of thought at the moment, as it has been for a long time, is that 50% is nature, 50% is nurture. So that means 50% is trainable at least. And, and as I think we talked about earlier, ineffective, ineffective learning, if we've got 50% to play with there, we're probably only realising 20% of it to start with. And then I think the genetic stuff, a lot of it is self-selection. Mm. So therefore, you've probably already got people predispos- uh, pre- have a predisposition to that sport, that are already in that sport. So I think it takes care of itself. You're not going to see you or I out there trying to run the 100-metre sprint. We sort of realise that we're probably not going to be that fast. So I think that happens. But there's certainly probably some genetic elements to uh, is self-regulation taught or is it you're born that way well I think it's still teachable but I think we also realise that there's some critical influences that you have in early childhood that might shape that so more and more we're seeing athletes that come from a underprivileged background they have that hunger Mm. and that manifests itself throughout their career as opposed to coming from a more privileged background it's possibly easier to opt out along the way. And I think more and more athletes are coming from this harder edge upbringing. So we've got to be careful. We obviously love the environment that we're brought up in for a reason, but we need to realise it. So it's not necessarily genetics, but it's very early uh, nurturing that's coming into play or lack of nurture coming into play there that we might always fight against that. Yeah, and and I think when you talk about the underprivileged side, I think I always think of... Um, two sports that comes into mind for me mostly one is boxing yeah and the other one is um, football soccer yeah especially with from South American countries yeah yeah a- absolutely and they're they're often exci- uh, uh, cited as examples of this that to get out of that life or system that they're stuck in you've got to have some physical skills in, and they're the predominant sports that get you out and probably a more contemporary example that gets cited a lot as well is the runners from Kenya um, mm. really um, high poverty if you can run you can you can uh, earn enough money to support a whole village and so it becomes a, a very strong factor as well to, to, to do that so but very true in terms of um, football or soccer, but not even just in South American countries. We're seeing it even in the UK mm. as, a, as an example as well now. So um, I think that's just going to continue, isn't it? The way our world seems to be going, it's going to be more important. Exactly. So I'm an athlete, as many of the, the listeners will be, and it's like, you know, I've got the opportunity to ask this question of, of you because I want to get better at my sport, whether it's golf or something else. Um, what are some of the 
what are some of the key things that I need to look at in order for me to get better over the next, um, you know, six months or a year? You know, say what are the top three or top five things that I need to do in, in, with my learning, with my training? Okay. Firstly, be honest with where you're at. So evaluate or have a coach evaluate where it is that you're successful and what are your gaps. Um, two, devise a plan to work on, your, on the gaps. So there's um, a great study done with, um, I think they were Canadian ice skaters, figure skaters, and they observed the national squad training. Those that made the Olympics were the ones that worked on their triples. Those that didn't make the Olympics but are in the national squad were those that worked on their doubles. So just observing the practice behaviours, the, the better practices or the more elite athletes focus on the gaps, that mm. their weaknesses, and are prepared to work on that. Harder, tra- harder practice as a consequence. So I think realising that. And then when you engage in practice, engage in it in a very effortful way. Don't just go through the motions. And if you do just go through the motions, you may as well stop practice. Um, so it really needs to be difficult yeah. for yourself. But not, not extreme either. It's what we call a challenge point where you have to strive, but you do reach some level of success. So I think probably to me they're the key three. And then the fourth and probably final point is to evaluate and, and feed that back into your, to your next practice and, and so on. So you're having this plan that's a bit systematic and it's not just uh, you're not just looking session by session but over a longer period of time realizing that um, certainly in my work I haven't met anyone that's fast-tracked skill learning I think there's just it's like good wine it takes time to mature and you can put in place effective principles which will help you but it's still not going to be fast there's still a, a dedication required yeah but the nice thing is that for every every week, every month that you're implementing this type of training, you're going to get better, so you're enjoying the fruits of that training anyway. Yeah, you're going to get that relationship that I mentioned earlier. Motivation creates learning, and learning will create more motivation, and Mm -hmm. so you'll benefit from that, absolutely. That's fantastic. Great advice. Damien, thanks very much. I'm sure that the the listeners will get plenty of value out of, of what you've had to say today. Thanks, Peter.